0: everybody and welcome to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our twice weekly Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I'm Max Boltman. with me as always is Prashant Ayer, and not with us for the first time ever on this show is Chris Meaney, who was our producer for the entirety of the lifespan of the show uh, up until about a week ago, uh, last Friday, Chris was part of the layoffs at The Athletic. Um, we're really gonna miss Chris. He he was a huge part of this show. Um, if if you've enjoyed it over the over the the life cycle that we've had, almost nine months here, I, I promise you, Chris is a big reason why. Um, and we just wanted to kind of off the top, you know, express our uh, how much we liked working with Chris. How, how how sad we are that we won't be on this show anymore. Um, and, and just let you guys know that's part of the reason we've been off the air for the last twelve days. We've got a new producer now. Uh, we are definitely excited to work with with Danielle on this show. She's going to be great. She's got a hockey background too, so you're not going to lose anything um, in terms of in terms of that side of things. But but I think you know Chris was a, a very real presence, even if you guys didn't always hear him weighing in on every episode. Um, he's also just a, a brilliant sports mind, and I can't encourage you enough to continue following his work uh, because no matter where he lands, he's going to be someone who I would consider a must follow on Twitter. He's at Chris Meany at C H R I S M E A N E Y. And I would recommend you go follow him right now. He's going to be great, especially for fantasy sports. He helped me win my fantasy football league this year. um, And I cannot say enough about uh, him as as a person, as a sports mind and and certainly um, as, as a producer of our podcast. So, He's been great to work with. We're definitely going to miss him. And we just wanted to start the show that way. We're also you know, going to be having a, a few little changes that we'll note um, here for you. The show during the summer now is going to be uh, only once a week. Uh, we're still going to be on for all the big news events. You're still going to have us after the draft lottery, run the draft, uh, free agency. Every time there's big news, we'll be here. We'll be on we just may not be quite as frequent with the twice a week, every week as we had been previously. Uh, it'll be a little bit of an adjustment, but but I think it's going to work out just fine, and uh, we'll we'll still finish up some of the series we had been doing here, on especially with the dominant teams bracket. I don't think you'll notice too big a difference in that way, but you may be hearing from us a little less often for the summer, but we'll get back to it, and uh, and, and we'll make sure that we're not missing out on any anything uh, that we're supposed to weigh in on, anything you guys need to stay busy, and and obviously we really appreciate. Everyone's patience with us, as I know it's been uh, almost two weeks now since our last episode. So, definitely been tough times in Wings for Breakfast Land, and we really appreciate everyone being patient and sticking with us. Prashant, anything you want to add to all that?
1: No, I mean just echoing your sentiments about Chris. I will say, Chris, for those of you that don't know, is a major Habs fan, and so being a Red Wings fan and uh, you know running this podcast for the last year, literally the only positive thing we were ever able to say about the Red Wings was the fact that they swept. You know, the, the Montreal Canadiens and Chris, you know, took it on the chin. Absolutely loved it. Gave us great banter back and forth. Uh, so really going to miss working with them, but excited to be working with Danielle uh, moving forward. And so you guys will hear and see more of her uh, as a part of our pro- uh, producing team going forward.
0: Yeah, she's gonna still weigh in. She'll help decide some tie breaks with Prashanth and I disagree. And uh, she'll she you know she follows the ducks. So John Gibson there should be a, a, quite the foil to Prashanth uh, Prashanth's goalie hatred. So we'll see who comes out on top and all of that when all is said and done.
1: It's fair. It's fair, but there are plenty of other ducks goalies that didn't go in the first or
0: second round. I'm just gonna say that. Well, we'll see. We'll see how it shakes out. I'm I'm excited for a, a new take on Prashanth's take. So, uh, with all that said, uh, <laughs> we're definitely going to miss Chris, and uh, and we're we're into sort of a new chapter here, and uh, and, and we are excited about what everyth- what that will bring with everything. So, um, just wanted to get get all that out there, make sure everyone was aware of, of of the changes and how things might look a little bit different here in the short run. Um, but we also really appreciate everybody for sticking with us and for for still listening. So, without further ado, we are going to get into today's show. Um, I dropped a mock draft. It was mock draft 2.0 this last week. Uh, this was the three rounds. So the first one that was uh, really goes beyond the first the first round and the first pick or so. So we got six picks in the first three rounds to break down. Uh, the Red Wings will have three in the second round, two in the third, and obviously their their first pick, which. We are less than two weeks from knowing where it is. Anything, though, jump out to you about this first, uh, I guess it's 2.0 mock draft for the Red Wings, shot.
1: Yeah, so I absolutely love that. Just right off the bat, you crushed everybody's hopes and dreams and just started with the Red Wings at fourth overall. So I think everyone really enjoyed that, opening the article and seeing fourth overall being the get-go, mathematically most, uh, most likely spot for the Red Wings to draft. But way to keep crushing those, uh, those hopes and dreams, Max.
0: Yeah, I had to. You know, I mean, I, I'm not going to be the one that sets everyone up for disappointment when it's more than twice as likely as the next most likely outcome. That's fair. Uh, that's absolutely fair. And
1: and I think even beyond the fact that you set the Red Wings up with fourth overall, you also went with a player that you know not a lot of mocks and not a lot of people have necessarily put him at fourth overall, despite throwing his name around in that tier. And you went with Alexander Holtz. Uh, who's basically a great, great sniper, arguably the best goal scorer in this uh, in this draft class. And you went with Holt at four. Uh, presumably, uh, I think you said you assumed that Lafreniere and Byfield and then Stutzla were the top three that had gone. So that's ahead of guys like Marco Rossi, Lucas Raymond. So I'm curious a little bit. You, you gave a little bit of text uh, kind of supporting that there. But what else kind of drove you to, to put Holt at fourth overall? Yeah, so
0: it, it's two things. Number one, I think he's a really good player. And I think he merits consideration here, right? Like, I think he, as as a goal scorer, as a player who is advanced, who has proven it against men, like, he is in this tier. And I, I think, like, there's a really good argument for picking him. I think he's the guy who, if the, if the Red Wings are looking for someone who's going to become uh, maybe their third 30 goal scorer since 2009. Alexander Holtz has a very real chance to be that. Should they draft him, he's got a great shot. Uh, Corey has has really strong grades, in particular on his puck skills and vision. I, I've watched uh, some Holtz video, and uh, you know, I, obviously Corey has seen more than me, but I haven't seen anything that would indicate that that's you know off base at all. So um, I, to me, I think Holtz is a, is an outstanding, has an outstanding potential as an offensive player. And I think the fact that he has proven it and done it against men really means something. At the same time, I do want to interject here that I think people sometimes take these as like, this is like me ranking sometimes with mock drafts. Like I'm trying to show different scenarios here, right? Like I I've done one where Marco Rossi was the Red Wings pick at four. I think that would be a fine pick too. There's a very good case for it. He's a center. He handles some of their playmaking issues, whereas I think the Red Wings, for what it's worth, have issues with playmaking and goal scoring. I don't find that to be a particularly controversial take, but I think in some of the comments, some of the response was, you know, they need a playmaker more. And, you know, I I get it. I think they also need a center a lot. I get it. But I think there's a real case here for Marco Rossi. A lot of it, or sorry, for well, for, yes, for Marco Rossi, but also for Alexander Holtz. <laughs> and, uh, and and I think that you know it's it's just worth diving into that. I also think Holtz plays the kind of game that NHL scouts are going to like a lot, right? Like where there are going to be more questions about height and and all that stuff about Marco Rossi. You know, get your mind around the fact that it's not just him and it's not just Lucas Raymond, who also is an incredibly talented prospect. I've seen he and Holtz live at the uh, World Junior Summer Showcase. Uh, Raymond pops a lot off the ice. So does Holtz. So I, I think that, you know, everyone's going to have some kind of preference order there. I'm not even necessarily indicating that I, I rank one over the others, but I think those three, along with Cole Perfetti and along with Jamie Drysdale, are all together in a tier. And so part of the rationale for putting Holtz here. It's just I wanted to explore one of the options that hasn't been explored very much.
1: Yeah, and and Holtz is again when you're talking about players, Max. I think you made a great point that there's really a tier of players here between you know three all the way down to arguably eight or nine, depending on how you want to do this. Where these are players that are very very similar uh, to one another, and there's not a whole lot of separating them um, kind of from who's going to go at three and who's going to go at eight or nine. Like I don't think there's a a lot of distinction here, and so I think that's really important for people to just not lose sight of that fact that hey, you know, there's a there's some great players, great talent, and there's not a whole you know lot separating um, moving forward. And so when I think you're talking about Alexander Holtz, I think there's a couple of things to really drive home. Uh, and so first, I saw a lot of discussion going on about this um, on Twitter about how would Holtz have performed if let's say you took Jack Quinn off the Ottawa Sixty-Sevens and you put. Alexander Holtz in that position. And and when you're comparing Holtz, who's, again, playing in the SHL, arguably one of the top three leagues uh, in the world uh, after the KHL and the NHL, and you're taking a guy who's playing just over 12 minutes a game and was getting maybe one and a half shots on goal in that men's league at his age and dropping him into Jack Quinn's position where Jack Quinn is playing on the most loaded team in the OHL. Uh, He's got other talented players on his roster like Marco Rossi that take some of the attention away from him. He gets 21 minutes a night. Uh, He gets to shoot the puck four times a game. You know, you put a guy like Holtz in that position and with Holtz's skill set, you're talking about a guy who, while Jack Quinn scores 50, maybe Holtz scores 60 or 70. And I think that's the kind of talent – uh, you're seeing from a player like Alexander Holt. And and that's honestly what I think makes him such a special player and and merits his discussion in these settings because he is going to be the best goal scorer. And when you're talking about a Red Wings team that right now uh, can't seem to put the puck in the net, had one of the worst offenses in, in franchise history, uh, it's hard to argue against taking a guy that's arguably the best pure sniper uh in, in this draft, like you're almost saying, I'm going to take the Patrick Linea of this draft. And while Linea is certainly an inferior player overall to a guy like Matthews, Patrick Linea is still an incredibly talented player that offers a lot to Winnipeg and gives them that extra dynamic. So I think there's a lot of positives about Alexander Holton. again, it's another uh, another scenario for people to look at and see. um you know, at the four spot for the Red Wings.
0: Yeah, the, the criticism I was most surprised by was the idea that people think Holtz is slow. And I don't agree with that at all. I mean, I know that he's not, you know, as fast as Tim Stutzla, but he's, you know, he's still a quick player, right? Like he's still, I mean, is he gonna be an absolute end-to-end burner? I, I don't think so necessarily. And, you know, Corey's got a 50 on his skating, which is dead average, right? But I, like, I don't see a huge drop off from like even like a Philip Zadina and, and even in the clips that Corey ch- chooses, you can see th- this is not just like a stand in one spot sniper type player. Like he shows a couple of clips, uh one where Holt isn't even an entry man. And, it, you know, on tape, you know, you can never fully tell when you're watching tape of especially younger players where there's a little bit more standing. Um, but, you know, is, is he going to go coast to coast? Maybe not a ton. But I, I don't think that the, I don't particularly think the skating is going to be a giant inhibitor. Do you? No, I mean you're
1: again talking about this being in the SHL like uh, if you're worried about skating and it's a guy in the OHL the QMJHL, you know, places like that where the league is vastly, you know, different from the NHL level, I think that's more of a concern, but we're talking about the SHL which is like I said, the third best league in the world. It's right behind the KHL and it's uh right there behind the NHL and so I think you're talking about a guy that if he's able to go out and put up the third most points per game of any draft eligible player in the last, you know, 20 years in the SHL, and the only guys ahead of him um, from a forward spot are Elias Lindholm and Nicholas Backstrom. I think two guys people are relatively familiar with. Uh, it's it's really really impressive what he's been able to do, and so I, I just don't think you can do that if you're not able to skate at the pro level. And yes, there are deficiencies to Holtz's game. He's certainly not in. Uh, at least this year, he didn't have a huge impact at five on five. He was kind of a minus from a five on five, uh, Corsi four percentage standpoint relative to his teammates. That's certainly a concern. Uh, you know, he was, when you're looking at five on five, even strength, goals four percentage, he was minus 5.3% relative to his teammates. That's potentially a concern. Although, again, we're using goals four when that's not an ideal statistic to use. But that being said, I think there are clearly tools and skills about this kid that warrant his mention uh, in the top five, and certainly at fourth
0: overall. I, I would agree And that. So I, I don't know. I, I'm again, I'm not going to say that I think that Alexander Holtz is a stone cold number four, and you'd be crazy to pick someone else there. I'm not even necessarily saying he should be the favorite, but I'm saying that he should be a real option here. And I think especially for a team like the Red Wings. Uh, yeah, they've got players like Anthony Manta, Philip Sedina, who who can be uh, score first wingers already. Both of those guys can also make plays. And by the way, I think Holtz probably can too, right? Like Corey's got a 60 on his vision. I don't think this is a guy who's going to be a stand in one spot, one timer guy. So um, I thought Holtz made sense. He also fills what happens to be a knee. This was not why I uh, put him in the force plot, but they don't have any impact right handed uh forwards on the roster right now. I mean Luke Denning certainly makes an impact, but he's not an you know an impact guy as we would use the term here. So um kind of a, a, a happy coincidence for the Red Wings if that's how it works out. And so is Lucas Raymond and that's the point that, that came up in, in some of the responses. And Lucas Raymond uh can obviously make a lot of plays. So I, I you know I would not knock a Lucas Raymond pick at number four. But I, I just thought you know Holtz is a very to me a uh, very real, should be a very real consideration at that four spot.
1: Yeah, I almost wonder if we'd be talking about him differently had he stayed the whole season in the Super Elite League, which is the, the Swedish Junior League. Well, and that's yeah. where a lot of the, the players come from. And, and remember, Holtz actually started the season in that league, but had to be moved up to the SHL because he scored seven goals in three games. Like, the the kid was going to break every record if he stayed in that league, and therefore had to be moved up to the next challenge. And so if all of a sudden you're talking about a kid who scored 65 goals in the Super Elite League, which he very well may have, uh, I think the press about him is different. And that's that's kind of wrong because, again, we're relying on point totals at this point and, and not necessarily making the necessary inferences about these players. Uh, but at the end of the day, we know very little about an 18-year-old kid. We know very little about all of these 18-year-old kids so much of what they become ultimately depends on how they're drafted, developed, and, and managed from this point forward. So, Max, I think it was totally reasonable to put them at four. Well, thank you, Prashant.
0: Let's see if you think the same about the rest of the draft. That, that part I'm less confident that you'll agree with. Uh, at 32, I went with Ozzie Weisblatt. I know that you've got uh, you know, some mixed feelings about some of the WHL prospects. I'm sure there's probably even WHL guys who will go later than 32 that you might even like more than Ozzy. But what did you think of that, that pick? Yeah, Weissblatt's an
1: interesting player. You know, he's, uh, again, not that – he's not like a prototypical – there's not like a skill that you're going to point out about Weissblatt and say, yes, this is what he does outstandingly well. Um, that being said, he is uh, a good driver of at least high danger chances, and some of Will Scouch, uh, some of Will Scouch's tracking data, he's found that when uh, Weissblatt's on the ice – uh, his team tends to take very few low danger chances and mostly takes high danger chances. I think that's worth mentioning, um, you know, in the WHL this year, he had a relatively uh, okay year. I mean, nothing mind blowing. This again was a down year for the WHL relative to uh, last season. Like we've talked about a number of times, you don't have the same kind of trio of centers and Krebs, Doc and Cousins uh, at the top of the draft board. You you have a far fewer uh, talented players there. But that being said, I do think White Splat is a guy who will get some mention somewhere between 30 and 60. Um, whether he's right to go at 32, that may be a little early for my taste for a guy that, like I said, I don't know that he does anything that really blows your mind. And and at 32, you're likely to have um, a handful of other players that uh, could have slipped in the first round. And again, with this not being a, a pure mock, um, you're kind of left to guess who was actually on the board at at 32 for Max to, to pick from, but I think I'm okay with the pick given that this is kind of the realm in which he could go, but it's certainly on the earlier side for me, uh, just given the the relative down year for the WHL, the fact that his numbers don't blow you off your mind. He doesn't have this that one skill you want to kind of concentrate on and, and say, this is what this kid does different and better than, you know, 95% of his draft class.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, one of the reasons that I ultimately leaned that way was in part Connor Corey's evaluation of Weissblatt and, and particularly this quote from uh, his coach, Mark Habscheid. He competes well. He's a swagger about him. He wants to be in pressure situations, quick stick in feet and smart offensively. To me, that just went through and ticked a whole lot of boxes of what kind of we saw Iserman's type be when it came to drafting forwards. Now he did draft defensemen with his first two top picks last year Um but I thought, you know, that ticked some boxes of, of of the direction the Red Wings went, particularly with the Robert Mastro Simone pick last year.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, Mastro Simone sounds exactly like this guy. And, yep. and in fact, they're kind of relatively similarly sized, the white spot being 5'10", kind of 180 pounds, uh, very similar to, to Master Simone. And again, these are the kinds of players that uh, if you accumulate these high-compete players, uh, these are the guys that may end up winning out from a development standpoint and making uh, – you know the NHL, and that may be what separates them from some of the other guys in that thirty to sixty range. But uh, like you know, like I said, I can't really argue with the pick because I think he belongs in that tier. Uh, to me, I would assume that there's a handful of other guys I might like a little bit more uh, in the upper part of that uh, first round, but can't can't fault you for for going with a guy that has a high motor, high compete uh, level, and and plays well kind of in all different areas and wants to be in those difficult situations. You want to throw a couple names at me or at the
0: listeners who I'm sure will be wondering?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, when you're talking about the guys that are going to be there right around in the early part of the thirties, you're, you're wondering if, if Paterka or Reichel is going to be there. There's for sure, you know, been mocks that have had them go as high as 20. There've had, there've been mocks where I've seen some of them fall into the fifties. And so in that 20 to 50 range, it sounds like you may have a shot at one of those guys. Um, I do really like both Paterka and Reichel. I think, uh, both have uh, done a really nice job, and again, in a professional league in the DEL. You know, I've knocked the DEL relative to the KHL, SHL, and Liga, but that being said, it's still a, a professional league. It's still a men's league, and those two guys have done quite well for themselves. So if one of them's sitting there at 32, for I sure. think that's a that's a pick you might want to make. Uh, a couple of other guys to, to look at, you, you'll have to see how the defensemen shake out. Uh, there's one guy we'll talk about with your next pick, uh, down in the fifties, uh, Emil Andre, who I think could go as as high as the late twenties, if not be right around that thirty range. I think he's a guy that could be in there. Um, some of the other Swedish defensemen, William Wallander, uh, Helga Granz, uh, you know those those guys are from a defenseman standpoint. I think other ones you want to consider, and then you, you just have to see how everything else plays out. I mean, if Ian Mishak slips it at 32. He's, again, another guy that gives you a, a a big tool in his shot, his playmaking ability, that he's the guy you may want to look at there. So it's hard to say without knowing uh, who else was taken before your pick, but uh, I think there's a lot of, of names you want to consider, and those are all names I would put ahead of Weissblatt at this point.
0: Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and certainly um, someone like Reichel or Paterka, if they're there, like that. that's part of the 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 write-up that I did was – one of the fun parts about pick 32 is someone slides and then you have all night to do due diligence and make sure that, you know, they're not sliding for a reason that you also want to pass on them for. And, you know, you, you find really good players that way. Last year, I pointed out, you know, at 32, it was Shane Pinto who had an unreal freshman year at North Dakota. 33 is Arthur Cali of a guy who could have gone in the top like 15. And I don't think anyone. Have. Right. Exactly. And, and ended up as like a top 10 prospect for Corey in the midseason ranking. So in that little time. Um, so that you're hoping for a scenario like that. And I don't think a Patrick or a Reichel is going to be a a fall of Cali of level proportions, but especially, you know, when I watched Reichel's highlights not too long ago, it really jumped out at me and they're just, those are just highlights. So, you know, they're going to look good. Uh, but yeah, something like that happens. That's a no brainer. Um, but I, I, you know you're making good points, and I think especially when when it comes to those defensemen, the the Grands or the Wallanders, um, those are guys who kind of seem to fit the type of defenseman that that the Red Wings lean to, uh, certainly last year, and that's one reason why I think my if I was going to critique my own mock draft, it, the critique would come at number 51, where I had them deviate from that rather sharply in, in taking Emil Andre from uh, from the super elite in Sweden.
1: Yeah, I mean Andre, like I just said, is a guy who could go. Yeah. As early as the late twenties, he could go much later because it all depends on how people are going to perceive him from a size standpoint. Because, you know, at the end of the day, Andre's not that big of a defenseman. Uh he's he's on the smaller side, he's five foot nine. He's well built though at 183 pounds. Um, you know, cough, I'm gonna cough and say he's the same weight as Jake Sanderson. So just to put that out there, but uh he was an absolutely dominant offensive player, I think uh you know, in the Super Elite League this year, he he scored at a really high rate. He played 24 minutes a night. You know, when he was on the ice, his, his team scored 58% of the even strength goals for. Uh, so he was a big, big positive um, in the Super Elite League. I think the one knock that, you know, Corey's had that I've heard echoed from a lot of other people was that his skating isn't necessarily elite. And that's kind of what separates him from being a Quinn Hughes type player that has that elite skating, the elite ability to transition the puck from his own zone up the ice uh, and into the offensive zone. Andre doesn't necessarily have that game-breaking speed. Um, however, he is quite shifty. He is a good playmaker. So that's where I think he he's not in that Quinn Hughes tier, but he's in a tier of defensemen that's small, capable. I think a guy I liken him to is uh, Sam Girard in Colorado who can do a lot of the same things from a similar size.
0: I like the Gerard idea a lot. I, I did have to kind of check myself to make sure. And, and I don't know. I, I don't know that I ultimately came to a conclusion here. Like, he's the same height as Tori Krug. Is there a part of my brain that's just, you know, won't let this just idea wire to Torrey Torrey Krug. Krug? Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's just trying to connect any, any Tory Krug's to Detroit or whatever out there in the world. Um, but, you know, my, my reasoning ultimately for, for going this route, even in the face that it, I do think it contradicts a little bit what the type of this Red Wings scouting department uh, did last year at, at the least, is, you know, you don't need all defensemen of the exact same type. And one of the things that this Red Wings de- defense pipeline certainly seems a little lighter on is the more offensively geared defenseman. And, you know, I think that there, you know, in, in Corey's write up, he says, you know, Andre isn't that big, but he plays hard, closing well on checks and using his body to separate pucks. I think that's essential to even thinking about going kind of out of the model here because it, there's really nothing to suggest that the Red Wings are going to at this point be interested in defensemen who aren't going to play defense, but someone who has the ability to add more offense, who could run their first power play potentially. um, I think that matters. And I think if you've got a bunch of really big guys around him, maybe are you a little bit less worried about his height that way? I mean, to me, it's just like at some point you you get all these really big, potentially two way guys who aren't quite number one power play types. You got to find your number one, number one power play type. And if they're not gonna take my advice and go sign a Tory Krug, maybe they just draft one. That's fair. And hey, if you
1: if you're not gonna go out and sign Tory Krug, this is the perfect player to get because it's a much younger version of potentially Tory Krug, although there's a lot of uh, years in between him becoming that. But oh, I do no, think no. Andre can be that type of player. I think Andre can be a similar type of player to Sam Girard. Girard, I believe, was a second round pick in the in the mid-40s. So that's where I think this is a reasonable spot to take Andre. Uh, And so if he's there, you may get a game changer on the back end, which would be huge for the Red Wings.
0: To be clear, I'm not making the Tory Krug comp. I was just kind of noting, you know, that's the height (laughs) profile, right? Like that's not, I'm not making that comparison. And if he was supposed to be like the next Tory Krug, he would be going 40 spots higher than number 51 at least. So just going to put that out there right now. That's fair. Okay. All right. Moving along to the number 58 pick. That is one where I put a guy who I think you and I are in lockstep on. Another slight, maybe deviation. I don't know from kind of the. I don't know if he quite fits the same mold. That you know, I also this is a guy who was only in North America for like thirty games. But Martin Kromiak, he he came over from Slovakia to Kingston for the second half of the season, put up huge numbers. He was playing next to Shane Wright, um, but I don't like knocking guys too much for having good line mates. It's so it's context. It, it's noteworthy, but I don't like you know ruling anyone out who ever played with a, a really top prospect because you can talk yourself out of some really good prospects that way. What do you see in Martin Kromiak? Yeah, I mean, Kromiak's a
1: guy that I think a lot of people just aren't talking about because of what you said. You know, he played over in Slovakia. He came over, uh, you know, later. He comes to the Kingston team that's just absolutely putrid. I mean, Kingston, I think, was like 19-39, and so uh, absolutely awful team. But he flew under the radar, uh, you know, with Kingston, he was actually seventh in points per game in the OHL amongst draft eligible players. That's ahead of guys like Ian Mishak, Tyler Tulio, uh, you know, and a handful of other guys that have been talked about ahead of him, Luke Evangelista, Yarmir Pitlick. Uh, so it's it's very interesting that he's kind of quietly there. I mean, he's honestly .05 points per game right behind Jacob Perot, a guy who's talked about going in the kind of late teens, early 20s. He's right there with Tyson Forster. Uh, So I think he's a really, really talented player that just hasn't gotten a lot of pub. But as on that Kingston team that I just told you was 19 and 39, he had a even strength goals for percentage of 50.8%, which was plus 17% relative to his teammates. And so when he's on the ice, his his team is scoring basically 17% more than when he's off the ice. And, And that's phenomenal when you're talking about seeing this on a bad team with little support. The guy was able to produce at the seventh best scoring rate, have a huge impact at even strength, and also, you know, generate shots at a high rate, transition the puck well. I think he's a real sleeper pick. And so he's a guy that just hasn't been talked about. I can't tell you why, but he gives the Red Wings, uh, you know, decent size, decent two-way play and potentially some scoring upside with a pick that's as late as 58. So he's a guy I absolutely love if he's available right there.
0: Yeah, so the one kind of flag in in Corey's write-up is he lacks NHL quickness and off the puck he's just okay with a tendency to be a perimeter player who doesn't win many puck battles. That could matter, especially as we talk about how much the compete seems to be kind of a bottom line, at least from what Hawken Anderson relayed to us at the draft last year uh, for Steve Iserman. So... Is that rule it out? I don't know. But I think, you know, I, I, I embedded a highlight uh, in the mock draft of a no look between the legs pass to Shane Wright that he made. And I just got to say, there's not that many players in the Red Wings, at least far along in the Red Wings pipeline, who I think are making that play. Now, this is junior hockey, and does it translate to the NHL is another question. Um, but between that, between, um, you know, the full kind of offensive package that you could be looking at. Is it worth deviating a little bit at this late in the draft? I think it is. I think it's the, I think it's, this is your, your upside swing.
1: Yeah. And, and I just have to say this because this always boggles my mind. Kingston's goal differential was almost as bad as the Red Wings. Like let's huh. just put that in perspective. They were minus eighty-seven goal differential in their uh, in their fifty-eight games played. Like that's on par with the Red Wings being minus one hundred twenty-three goal differential in their seventy-one games played. Martin Kromiak's plus-minus was zero. I hate plus-minus. That's still impressive when your team is minus eighty-seven goals and you have a plus-minus of even that that means something you're doing something right so you know maybe there's a there's some compete issues maybe there's some issues with him being a little bit more on the perimeter but he's a guy that when he's on the ice something's something right is happening for a really bad team so i'm i'm okay taking a shot when you're at 58 there on that upside
0: yeah yeah all right moving into the third round i think this is a guy that you also would be in on. This is uh, Daniel Torgerson, another, Torgerson, another uh, left wing out of Sweden in the Forlunda organization in the Super Elite. This one is a much bigger, much bigger player. So he's 6'3, he's six threes, over 200 pounds. Corey kind of praised his ability to score, his ability in to the tough areas, his ability to penalty kill. All of these kind of fit in line. And, and, a, and a guy who did score some, he had some good numbers 26 goals in 39 games in the Super Elite, more than a point per game you do always have to wonder a guy who's kind of a little more physically developed at a young age, how much is that factoring into things? But, you know, I, I think, uh, this is one who certainly, I think fits more of the mold that, that, that uh, certainly, you know, it's almost like the Elber Soderblum, Elmer Soderblom, Elmer Soderblom minus a few inches there.
1: Yeah. I mean, Elmer Soderblom was his teammate on this team yeah. because that Frölunda team is absolutely loaded with Soderblom, Isaac Anderson, you know, Theodore Niederbach is another guy who's in this draft, uh, you know, there were even some games where, where Lucas Raymond played, but also Gustav Berglund was here. So to me, Torgerson's a guy that potentially the Red Wings staff has seen a fair bit, given that Soderblom and Gustav Berglund were over on that team. And so at his size, at six foot three, two 205 pounds, he's a really skilled, I think, two-way player. He does score, uh, you know, a fair bit in front of the net, although I think Corey in his uh, analysis of Torgerson didn't necessarily see him as the kind of quintessential net front power play type player. Um, That being said, when I watch Torgerson, I look at his stats, I see some of what he's got. He strikes me a little bit like a Johan Franzen type player. He's built similarly. I think he doesn't necessarily have Franzen shot, uh, but I think he's got a lot of that nose for the net. I think he's going to be a decent goal scorer. And I think he's a guy that has a strong two-way impact because Again, even on a loaded for London team, I'm, I keep coming back to these uh, even strength goals four percent percentage stats. His uh, even strength goals four percentage was seventy five percent, and that was plus twenty one percent relative to his teammates. So even on that loaded team, he was still making his team so much more better when he was on the ice. And, and I think that's, I think that can't be understated, um, you know, or it can't be overstated. I should say in this case because. He really is a dynamic player in both sense. And I think he has the capacity to play both the, the right or left wing. He has a left shot, but um, yeah, I think he's a dynamite player. And again, mocks have had him all over the place. To me, it seems like there's a handful, more than a handful of guys that are slated to go anywhere from 25 to 65. And if you're getting a guy of Torgerson's talent at 63, then I think you're
0: in business. All right. And the last one is the one I know you hate. I even put it in the write up, but I did take Joel uh, Blomqvist from Karpat in, the, in uh, the Finnish League. I'm sure you're gonna hate it, it Finnish Liga. I mean, he's the Junior A. Uh, he did lead the league in save percentage, which I think is worth noting. And the Red Wings are absolutely, uh, you know, I'm not gonna say barren. They have some names in there, but it's it is a uncertain picture to say the least at, at, in goal for the Red Wings of the in the future. Uh, basically, as soon as Jonathan Bernier's contract expires at the end of next season. So, uh, Philip Larson's in the HL. He, he at one time looked like kind of the heir apparent, did not have a good year this year as first year pro. Keith Petrozelli had a little bit of a bounce back. That, I think, especially considering how good Philip Larson had been in college, does not necessarily do a whole lot to, to lock anything down. You know, you got who else you got? You got uh, who's the guy? Yeah, Guylander, right? right? Yeah, Carter, Carter Guylander. Guylander. Who, uh, Jesper Eliasson, Swedish goalie. But I don't think there's any like clear heir apparent at this point in the Red Wing system. And I just figure with six picks in the top 65, potentially, of, of this draft. Uh, actually, I think that's locked up by now because it's, the top of the rounds are, are fine. So is it worth... Taking a swing on a goalie who's going to be kind of in that upper echelon of goalie prospects. I know you're going to say no, but I had to do it.
1: I mean, you know, I'm going to say no. And, and honestly, were you just like feeling too good about crushing the Kromiak pick and then crushing the Torgerson pick that you had to kind of bring everybody back down by taking the goalie at 65?
0: I I don't think it brought everybody down. To be clear, I think there's certainly listeners out there who probably are are thinking that a goalie in the top three rounds is worth doing, but it definitely brought you down. And yeah, I can't let you get too I can't let you like get too confident that you. You, you, you've gotten into my head and shaped my philosophy too much. It, it's really a it's a, it's a power play on my part. That's fair. That's fair. I mean, <laughs> I closed the article as soon as I saw that, and then I had to
1: reopen <laughs> for the comments just to just to see what happened. But all right, let me let me give a little bit more of my goalie spiel and ramble here if anyone hasn't heard this before. So number one, nobody, nobody, no team. The closest I think is the Ducks, but no team has actually done a decent job of repeatedly identifying good goaltenders in the NHL draft. The second piece is that even if you identify said goaltender, it takes years before they hit the NHL. So I'm going to throw a stat at you here. At the end, 10 years after their draft, 48% of first-round goalies had made it to 100 NHL games played. 10 years after the draft. You're talking about roughly 40% for second round goalies, roughly 20% for third round goalies, and then the rest of the rounds are somewhere between 5 and 15%. That's 10 years from the draft. So number one, taking a goalie in the draft, automatically the timeline doesn't line up with the rest of the skaters that you're taking in that draft. So your timelines are off. You're not taking a player that's going to pr- potentially provide you an impact in that five to seven-year window when you're looking to have that impact. So I think that's a huge issue. The third piece is that necessarily success at the junior level hasn't really been shown to translate to the NHL level with any level of repeatability. How many Canadian junior goaltenders that we talked about from Scott Wedgwood to Zachary Fucali to, you know, you name the goalie. We haven't necessarily seen them go from, hey, they were really good in juniors, really great. Uh, there, they couldn't necessarily bring that into the NHL level. And so I'll just give you this season, for example, if you take the top 30 goalies in the NHL this year by war, so wins above replacement, five of them were drafted in the first round. Five of them were undrafted. You had another handful. You had another, uh, let's see, seven here that were drafted in the fourth round or later. And so the remaining 12 are from the second and third round. So I I think it sort of illustrates that across all of these spectrums, you can get a goaltender that offers you starting goaltender numbers, i.e. top 30 goalie numbers. And and that's the important piece for me. And then finally, the the last thing is a lot of these goalies that I just mentioned, I talked about where they were drafted, but a lot of them are available either in low-cost deals and free agency. Uh, you know, take, for example, Tuka Rask. A lot of people are very familiar with Tuka Rask. He was a first round pick. But we all, a lot of people like to forget that, hey, this guy was actually traded for Andrew Raycroft by the Toronto Maple Leafs. They traded him for Andrew Raycroft. Uh, you know, Darcy is a sixth round pick. Ben Bishop has moved all over the place from Ottawa to Tampa to Dallas. Anton Hudobin has jumped all over the place. He was sixth in goalie war this year. So, I I think there's so many players, there's so many different ways that you can get that goalie that'll align with your timeline, that'll be cheaper, and it'll be much more easier to evaluate and make sure you're getting things right. Like, even Jordan Bennington, a guy who took St. Louis to the Stanley Cup, drafted by St. Louis. He was drafted in 2011. That guy, that timeline, just to show you, eight years later, he's leading a team to a Stanley Cup. It just, it doesn't match up with the rest of the players taken, so... I, I can't say
0: goalies, and at least in the upper part of the draft. At this point, uh, you've once again convinced me that I'm wrong. But I think we're just going to go on like a path where we're we're kind of like uh, like Lindsay and Tobias Funke in Arrested Development discussing <laughs> their open marriage. And you're going to say, well, did it work <laughs> out for other teams that drafted goalies? And I'm going to say, no, it never does. I mean, these people somehow delude themselves thinking it might, but but it might work this time. <laughs> but just this once... Just this once, it's going to be Joel Blomquist, and it's going to work. I will learn this lesson every time you you explain it, and then I'll forget it as soon as it comes time to do another mock draft. That's just how it's going to go. I know, and you're going to take a different goalie in your next (laughs) one. So I'm 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 very much ready for it. Drew Camesso, come on down. All right, uh, let's take a quick break right there. I want to hear from uh, from Hawthorne, one of our sponsors, and then we'll get into some questions. Here's the thing about buying cologne. Either you're buying the same brand, same type you always have, the one your parents bought you in high school, or you have to walk through a cologne store and be totally overwhelmed at all the choices. But we do it, because smelling good is really important. And around holidays, like Father's Day, which is coming up, we even do it for other people. But we don't need to jump through all the hoops to find a new cologne anymore. At least not with Hawthorne. Here's how it works. You take a quick two-minute quiz, and Hawthorne will tell you the two colognes that are best for you, one for work and one for play. It's totally risk-free with free shipping and free returns. And if you do want to do it as a gift, you can take the quiz for someone else. There's also other personalized products, deodorant, shampoo, body wash, everything you need to smell great. You're going to want to get in on this, so check out Hawthorne at hawthorne.co. That's Hawthorne with an E and .co, not .com. Hawthorne.co and use my promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your first purchase. That's Hawthorne.co, and use my promo code ATHLETIC to get 10% off your free purchase. Hawthorne.co. Okay, to the mailbag, and the first one we've got is from Nezzy. Nezzy wants to know, how many chances more does Chalowski have to stick in the NHL with the Red Wings?
1: It's a great question. I mean, you're now coming up on almost five years out from his draft the 2016 draft pick, so... It's uh, it's looking grim. I think we know from prior analytical work done by Nanda Kumar, who's an analyst for NHL Seattle, that you know by the time you're hitting five years from your draft and you haven't necessarily made the NHL, the likelihood of you being an impact player is quite low. Uh, so I think you're kind of running up on the end of Cholowski's chance to truly be anything impactful at the NHL level. I think at this point you're sort of hoping that he can stick as maybe a Five, six, seven type defenseman, uh, but it, it remains to be seen. I think next season, whenever that may happen, uh, will certainly be his best opportunity to stick in the NHL. But again, he's been given that opportunity each of the last two years to start the the year with the Red Wings. Hasn't been able to sustain his level of play. Hasn't been able to figure out the right balance between offensive aggressiveness and getting caught defensively. So. I think he's got maybe this one last year to to put it together to try and stick with the Red Wings. Otherwise, he may end up being a kind of journeyman, six, uh,
0: six, seven type defenseman. So my thing about, first of all, technically, Chalowski would meet the criteria for having made the NHL in, the, in Namita's work, right? Like it's just like a, a games played amount? Yeah, so it's a games played amount. But the
1: thing that she also did is she plotted against basically the distribution of their point shares from hockey reference. So not only did you get to see the the time to necessarily making it, but you also saw uh, the number of year by the Mm. number of years you would see the quality of player maybe that distribution. And so while Chalowski's there from a games played standpoint, he hasn't necessarily
0: stuck a full season, if you will. Okay, that's fair. My my broad theory on Dennis Chalowski is this, which is that he he made the team maybe a little bit Suddenly, And I, I certainly don't think it was sudden to him. And I think people had been wanting it to happen, but he made makes the team two years ago and all this feedback starts coming in about how his game needs to kind of change. And, and I don't know that it's always necessarily been just one thing. Like I think there's the idea of the D zone and there's the idea of, okay, yes, the D zone, but also don't lose the assertiveness. I think he's, there's a little bit of push and pull happening that is normal in development. And I, I think sort of the dip that you've seen since that really what was a really strong first month in which I think Jeff Blaschel, I did a story where I think Jeff Blaschel even said he saw potential first pair upside in him at that point. And so I think what you've seen since is a maybe a little bit of, um, you know, natural regression to the mean from that. Like that was probably a little too, um, a little, you know, a little more impressive than was realistic to uh, to hold up, but I also think a little bit of just the natural step back that comes when you're really working on parts of your games that aren't strengths and when you're working on them in games. So, um, I'm not going to put like a number on the num- how many chances he has left because you know, frankly, I think it's all just going to depend on there will be a breaking point when the Red Wings no longer deem, um, deem it to be you know like a, a viable option, but I, you know, I think he's going to be an NHL player. So I, I'm not really counting on the idea that he's going to just run out of chances. Like, I think he's going to, I think he's probably going to be like you said, a five or six, but you know, if, if the, if the, if everything comes together, there's no reason that says he still can't be a number four who plays on the power play. And while that's not like, you know, what you might've wanted as like a true top pair guy in the first round. And I know the chicken stuff col- colors, everything uh, when conversations about Chalowski happen, but I think he's going to make the team this year. I think he's going to stick. And I don't think, you know, maybe he'll never meet the first round expectations. So that's that's one side of this. But I, I think he's going to have a career. I think he's going to play for, you know, 8 to 10, you know, pretty good years in the NHL at least. Yeah, I mean,
1: I, I don't dispute that. I think he'll certainly bounce in the NHL. I think next year is the critical year for him just from a logistics standpoint with the Red Wings, right? So 2020-2021 is the last year of his ELC, his entry-level contract. Yes. So. At that point, he is going to be a restricted free agent. And the clock kind of starts because the waves of defensemen drafted after him are now at their kind of moment to hit the NHL. You know, Jared McIsaac has signed his entry-level contract. Uh, Albert Johansson has signed his entry-level contract. Antti Tuomisto is probably two more years away um, from, you know, getting two years in the NCAA before considering jumping. But he is not far behind making that jump. And then if there are other defensemen, you know, heaven forbid, the Red Wings take Jamie Drysdale at fourth overall this year. That's another guy that all of a sudden is pushing you out. And so I I think this is the big challenge for Chalowski because this is what happened to the group of defensemen that was here right before, you know, Chalowski, Horonic, Sarri Harvey. There was a group of defensemen here, you know, right before them. And, and that's the Ryan Sproul, the Xavier Olette, the, the Alexei Marchenko. All those guys are gone because at this point you had to make room for the next batch. And now Philip Peronick has stuck and Vili Sariarvi is gone. And now this is kind of Dennis Chelowski's I'm going to make my stand and stay, or the next wave is going to take me over here. And
0: so I, I think this is a critical year for him sticking with the Red Wings. I think that's fair. And and when I say, you know, I think he's going to have a career of, you know, eight to 10 years or whatever. Um, a lot of that is predicated on, I just think he's a really smart person. And I think, you know, maybe sometimes that can lead into, uh, over analysis. I don't know, but, but I think he's a smart enough person who's going to, when, when he, when he can get the, you know, all the pieces together, it, it's just going to work I, based on the brain is my, my opinion. I don't know. I don't know. And I will correct myself and say that, uh, a couple years ago, Blaschel's quote was, "He looks like a guy who could potentially be a top pair type D man." So maybe not as lofty as uh, as I thought I remembered on that. But that's still, you know, like they, they he saw at that point, a month into Chalosky's rookie year, a guy who could be a top half of the lineup player. And is that likely at this point? I I, I don't think so. But is he a guy who I think can, can hang out there and, and make a little bit of a difference on the power play, make a little bit of a difference at the bottom of a, of a defensive lineup? I think so, because he's smart, he skates well, uh, and, and you know offensive defensemen are not an area the Red Wings are flushing, as we talked about earlier in the mock. So to me, that's, uh, that's where I'm at on it, but I, I will grant, you know, it does have to actually happen at some point because potential can only stay uh, suitable for so long. Yep, I I can I can buy that. Okay, on to the next one. This one is from PJ Washer. He says, "Could hockey ever have a team like the Houston Rockets, who are anal- who have an analytics-driven game strategy with kind of all- how many threes they take, and what in your mind would that look like if there was one?"
1: You know, I think it comes down to the question of how much does coaching impact hockey, and I think from a lot of the estimates we've seen, I think most recently from Micah Blake McCurdy, who's at Ineffective Math on Twitter, the coaches just don't have a substantial impact on what you see on the ice. And so I now has has any coach necessarily attempted to do something like, you know, Mike D'Antoni's seven seconds or less offense in the NHL? No, we haven't really seen that. Um, We haven't really seen someone try to basically radicalize the game by changing up their strategy so much. You know, what would that even look like in the NHL, I think is a valid question. Is it? The first team to to ice five forwards at you know because they want to go all offense and and see how that works because they don't believe that defensemen necessarily contribute a whole lot. I think that's a that's an idea that exists that hasn't necessarily been put um, you know into action. But if you were to cycle five forwards on the ice and look at your shot volumes for and shot volumes against, how would that change? That might be the most radical thing that I could see actually see a coach trying. But at the end of the day. I don't know that there's a system or an offense quite like uh, the seven seconds or less Houston Rockets offense that has basically identified these shot locations where it's either the paint or the you know three point line is what's going to give you the most bang for your buck. That doesn't really exist because, like you know, in the NHL, we can say, "Oh, sure, you know, one timers are the most likely shots to go in," but setting up a one timer. Is quite difficult. Um, or deflections are, the, are a high likelihood shot to go in. But setting up a deflection is quite difficult. So I think in practicality, we can talk about the shot locations that are, you know, meaningful and useful in the NHL. But I don't think it's going to be in the same concept as the Rockets. But if if some team did try it, to me, my opinion would be it would look like five forwards on the ice the whole game and see what
0: happens. Yeah, that's definitely a good a good take on it is the five forwards. The only other thing I, I would say, and I think this to some degree may already happen sometimes, I don't know. like With the cross-ice passing that happens, I think this is what you're talking about with the one-timers. It, it, maybe it's just more of an emphasis almost defensively on sp- spending all of your attention on taking away the cross-ice pass and even almost letting someone take a shot from what might be a, a lower danger area up near the blue line as opposed to letting there be any cross uh, cross offensive zone passing that almost might be maybe the the more the easier way to innovate around that data about you know a cross ice cross slot pass uh, that it turns into a one timer or something else is, is almost on the defensive end
1: yeah yeah i mean you know I, I won't lie when i'm playing nhl 20 like all i'm trying to do is set up cross slot one timer passes and cuz that's the only way he can really score in the game so it it makes sense but i think practically speaking putting that into to play is just that's where I think the coaching element isn't as big as we perceive it to be. And that's why I don't necessarily think there could be a team like the Rockets, but it could also just be me being super naive and not believing that there is a strategy out there that could revolutionize the game.
0: Yep. Yep. All right. This next one is from Michael Giordano who says Could you discuss your thoughts about how the salary cap for this upcoming season might affect the Red Wings who have less players and money? Uh, already committed onto the schedule. Obviously, Um, other teams around the league certainly have higher cap hits coming in. Um, What are the, and and his question is, will the relatively good position there and put them in line for better grade free agents who take money over quality of team? Or how do we see the salary cap implications playing out for the Red Yeah, I mean, so it sounds like if the cap is the
1: same as it was this year, which was $81.5 million, instead of going up to the projected $84 million, I think the Wings will have about $34 million, uh, in cap space, maybe a little bit more than that. And so there's certainly a lot of potential. I think, number one, they have a lot of free agents that they have to take care of on their own. Um, but from kind of being a player in free agency, I don't see the, the salary cap necessarily impacting their strategy whatsoever in free agency. I think you've heard Steve Eiserman say over and over and over that, uh, you know, hey, I'm not going to rush this rebuild. We're not going to go out and make that Tory Krug splash max. So we're gonna we're gonna buy our time and and, and kind of take some uh, smaller steps to basically put the team in position for a sustainable rebuild. Uh, so I don't think the salary cap really changes what the Wings do in free agency. What it may do is is potentially strengthen their position to, again, acquire a, a big contract from somebody that may be expiring this year, a team like Tampa that has a lot of guys they need to get uh, under contract. You know, Tampa's got to deal with Mikhail Sergachev and Anthony Sorelli. Like, if you want to take one of their contracts from them, an Alex Kaloran, a Tyler Johnson, uh, maybe that forces Tampa's hand a little bit more. Uh, but I just don't see the salary cap necessarily impacting how the wings approach unrestricted free agency
0: whatsoever. I would tend to agree uh, just because, you know, we know from Steve Eisenman, everything he said so far, he does not want to build the team through free agency. He doesn't want to give kind of the max level contracts, even though there is not a, a individual contract maximum for, I guess there is for, for term. Um, so I don't think it's going to be huge in that way. Maybe, you know, he, he's kind of indicated he might be willing to be a little more aggressive in free agency than he was certainly last off season. But I still don't know that that's going to change the outlook. I, I would tend to agree that it it is an advantage in any way you want it to be with, with having more salary cap space. But the, the, the key is, do you want to use that advantage in free agency? Do you want to use it in kind of retaining your own players, which I don't even think, you know, they couldn't eat up all their cap players retaining, eat up their cap, retaining their own players at this point. Uh, do you want to use it in trades, taking on other people's bad contracts, or do you want to not use it for now? Um, all are valid options, and in my opinion, and you know, it, it will probably, you know, it we'll see which one they go with. It'll it'll probably be useful, but you know, I, I would agree that the most likely, uh, or, or most fruitful way to use it would be by taking on some other team's problem contract and getting an asset out of it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, the last one you brought up of not using it is such a smart idea because. If you just look back to this last trade deadline, which was one of the most active trade deadlines we've seen, uh, you know, in recent years, I wonder if a compacted season next year, if it is shortened at all, uh, potentially changes how teams strategize around a trade deadline and maybe preserving some of that cap space. Some teams may want to be more aggressive and the Wings could serve as that third team in the deal to take on some of that dead cap space and potentially get, you know, assets that way. So. I would say that the best move is to actually preserve that. So that's why I don't think the cap really changes anything for Detroit.
0: Yep. Yep. All right. I think that's going to do it for us for today. We will be back at you guys sometime next week. Thank you again for your patience in the delay between the last two episodes. And we'll talk to you next time. Take care.